And welcome to the podcast for this Wednesday, February the 24th. Coming up, the latest on COVID-19 and the vaccine rollout plan for Ontario. Plus, the need for more personal support workers in Ontario long-term care. And Tiger Woods' car crash, what it means for him moving forward and his golf career. That all ahead, coming up next, right here on the pod. Okay, earlier today we got timelines when the general public can expect to get vaccinated here in the province. And joining us now is vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. She joins us on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Okay, the online portal goes live, we've learned, March the 15th, with those over 80 able to make an appointment to get a vaccine. Uh, What did you make of the rollout plan outlined earlier today? It uh, really seems to be age-specific. I'm excited by it. Every single patient I have is asking, when am I finally going to get the shot? And the answer is, of course, we can't get those vaccines in arms soon enough. The problem has been one, of course, of not having enough vaccine to go around. So at this point, Ontario is turning in part to Ontario health teams. So these were created back in the pre-pandemic days. And the idea was to make all these disconnected family doctors work better as a coordinated team. So now we have 42 of these teams and they've been quite helpful. They're just one piece of a huge puzzle, but they have been quite helpful in ensuring that staff of long-term care and retirement homes get their vaccines, as well as staff and people who live in congregate care, as well as home care providers. So it's largely up to the 34 public health units in Ontario to ensure proper and equitable delivery of the vaccines. And right now, we're just trying to finish that stage one, you know, asking who is it that's most likely to die of the disease and most likely to spread it. We know the answer to that. Of course, those who live in long-term care, those who live in northern and remote First Nations communities, indigenous communities, you know, so those are the priority. And, of course, the long-term care workers. So how are we doing this? Right now, we've got hospitals set up. There's on-site clinics for these communities. There's adult chronic home care communities and of course mobile sites who are going to these congregate living facilities and urban indigenous communities. So once we're on to that stage two, that's when we'll hopefully have vaccine that can finally be stored at regular refrigerator temperatures to get to those stage two folks. And that of course includes older adults, beginning with those who are 79 years of age and decreasing in five-year increments as more vaccines become available. And finally, our essential frontline healthcare workers are also going to get vaccinated. I'm talking about ambulance, police, fire, teachers are on that list, food factory workers, and the migrant workers, those in shelters, correctional facilities, group homes, and black and South Asian communities who've been especially hard hit. Unfortunately, that's not starting until at least mid-March, possibly April. And that phase three that finally includes everybody else, including adults 16 to 59 with underlying medical conditions, is not slated to start until August. All right. So having said all that, and a great job of uh, kind of explaining and detailing the uh, timeline for us, I wanted to ask you, the UK yesterday announced a plan to lift, lift sorry, all COVID restrictions by June the 21st. Ottawa was asked about this, and they say that there's no official date for Canada. So when you look at the timeline for the rollout that we got today from the province of Ontario, 
When do you think Canadians can expect for life to uh, return to normal? And do you think it'll be for the country uh, as a whole, kind of like uh, the UK announced, or is it going to be different for different regions, different provinces? I guess part of that defines on, depends on how we define what normal is. You know, so let's look to Canada's chief, chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tan. She is hopeful we'll go back to some semblance of normalcy by the end of summer or September 1st. Of course, it's hard to predict because who knows exactly what the vaccine uptake will be and what effect the new variants are going to have. You know, so the variants are a very big deal because what happens, the more people who get infected, the more that virus is going to multiply. And the greater the chance of winding up with a mistake in that multiplication, that's called a mutation. And that's what creates these new variants. And when viruses mutate, the vast majority are going to have zero impact on human health. But every now and then, they do. And when the mutation causes the virus to become either deadlier or more contagious, they're called variants of concern. So in Canada, we're dealing with two of these right now the B117 variant, and that's first identified in the UK, and the B1351 identified in South Africa. Now, mainly what we have 20 times over is the B117 variant. And right now it's a small percentage, but we've seen this overtake other countries very quickly. At this point, only 5% of Canadians have either been infected or immunized. So what does that mean? 95% of us, as we speak, remain fully susceptible. So our main medicine right now is prevention. We have to continue limiting the gatherings, wearing those good masks, physically distancing, restricting the unnecessary travel, and of course, keeping our hands clean. This is going to be the case for some time to come. But once people are vaccinated, things should ease up quite a bit, especially on the gatherings and travel. Okay, when we talk about uh, prevention and vaccines, Dr. Gorfinkel, Manitoba's made some news today because they're said to be considering a vaccination passport uh, over in the UK. Again, they're reviewing this as well. Critics say that this is going to create uh, inequality. Uh, moving forward, do you think something like a vaccination passport, is that necessary to keep us safe? We are entering into a sticky zone, right? So far, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has actually opposed the idea. But of course, Manitoba, heck, that hasn't stopped them. There's, they're offering these COVID-19 immunization cards. They're hoping to have that in place by the end of June. Well, what do they do? All they do is give the information. Have you or have you not been vaccinated against COVID-19? And you know what? If you're planning on a trip to Iceland, well, they're going to have that in place that you better have that. And, and ditto goes soon, probably, for Denmark, Sweden, and Israel. So a number of countries are going to be instituting this restriction. But of course, here in Canada, we ask the question, and not unreasonably, what if that violates our rights and freedoms? And what, what if it stops? Should that stop at the border? What about if you're going to some religious venue or a restaurant or a museum or a concert? And what about employers? It, it opens a whole can of worms. You know, does an employee have a right to go into the hospital if they're working and potentially a super spreader? My personal opinion is, is once we've signed up to be a healthcare worker, we have every reason to make sure we're vaccinated and make sure that we do not spread it to other people. We know that 40% are completely asymptomatic and many are pre-symptomatic and don't realize it. 
and testing every day, yeah, that, that'd be great if we could do it, but the reality is we're not. And we have seen serious super spreader events. So my own personal opinion is if you've signed up to work in the kitchen, you got to make sure you're vaccinated. You know, so we'll have to see where this goes. Ultimately, mm-hmm. this is not a problem that stops at any one border. It's a global problem. Without a doubt, it's an important and difficult question, one of many uh, moving forward. Uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, appreciate the time as always on this Wednesday. Thanks so much. Many thanks. Always a pleasure. There's vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel with us. Today is day one of the commission looking into long-term care in the province. Ontario's top doctor, Dr. David Williams, along with the health minister, Christine Elliott, appearing in front of the commission. And appearing right now, joining us here on the radio, is Dr. Ahmed Arya. He's a long-term care expert, and he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Arya, nice to speak with you again. Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, uh, I want to start with the announcement from the uh, Premier uh, last hour. Have a listen to this. He is calling this one of the biggest investments in recruitment efforts in the province's uh, history when it comes to long-term care and personal support workers. We'll be offering tuition-free training to 6,000 students. This program will allow them to complete their studies in six months instead of eight, getting additional help to the front lines faster. All right, so tuition assistance, quicker timelines when it comes to a training. I mean, any help obviously is welcome, Dr. Aria, but is this enough? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, any help is, of course, welcome, but it's not sufficient. I mean, we I can just give you some numbers. So um, on Ontario, even for the existing long-term care beds, to get staffing up to what people have calculated is a minimum requirement, we actually need to hire 20,000 full-time staff, including PSWs and nurses uh, for the existing beds. And of course, we're in the middle of an expansion where we're building uh, 15,000 new long-term care beds. So what this means is we need to hire 44,000 full and part-time staff. So, I mean, this is just not enough. And a reminder that it was June 1st last year, which seems like a long time ago, when Quebec, uh, you know, the government there took full responsibility for the horrific conditions in long-term care homes and hired 10,000 PSWs at that time. So where was our government all during the summer? Where were they all during this, like, you know, the second wave? And of course, I mean, while this announcement is welcome because we're so desperate to increase the frontline care, it's just not enough. Yeah, just to give some perspective, the Premier said that uh, this $115 million investment uh, will train and recruit uh, just over 8,000 personal support workers. And to what you just said there, Dr. Arya, that, that's not even uh, getting us uh, half uh, halfway to where we need to be. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was reported at the start of the second wave in September that, um, you know, there were 30% less PSWs in long-term care uh, as compared to the first wave. And that's already when we had a sort of a crisis in terms of staffing. We didn't have enough PSWs heading into COVID-19. And what really I feel is at the root cause or like, you know, is, is at the roots of this problem is that firstly, we don't have a uh, minimum staffing standard. So we have no requirement for long-term care homes to hire a specific number of staff and have trained professionals on site. And secondly, we don't um, improve the working conditions where we, you know, people don't have paid sick leave. They don't have decent living wages. Although I will say the province has made one positive announcement towards that today as well. And people don't have permanent jobs. So that's kind of like the root cause of, of why we're in this situation. 
Okay, as I mentioned off the top, today is day one of this commission looking into long-term care. Dr. David Williams, Christine Elliott both appearing. Uh, Dr. Arya, if you were part of that commission, if you were at that table, uh, what would you like to ask either Dr. Williams or Minister Elliott? Well, I mean, I mean, that's a loaded question, Jeff. I think we all have, uh, you know, a lot of questions. And I mean, at baseline, we don't want to have them come and just sort of say what they already say at press conferences, which is that everything is all okay and they're trying their best, because clearly it's not. I mean, we had more deaths in the second wave from COVID-19 in long-term care as compared to the first wave. Our province's reaction and our response to the second wave, as I just mentioned, with respect to staffing, was grossly uh, insufficient. And and, um, you know, th- there was really no answer provided. So we want to, I mean, I hope the commission will ask them the tough questions. I hope we'll ask about, you know, inspections, right? Why wasn't their action taken in a decisive and quick fashion to save lives when inspections showed egregious failures in infection control? Why didn't they have a mass recruitment effort for staffing at the, you know, like during the summer, like Quebec? Why was there a reluctance to transfer residents to hospitals? I mean, these are just some of the questions I'm sure we'd all want to ask. Is the harsh reality, though, Dr. Arya, that uh, this problem with long-term care, it didn't appear overnight, and it's not going away, sadly, overnight, that there's just no quick fix here? Well, I mean, I think part of that is true. I mean, you know, this this problem has been decades in the making, and uh, as I sort of mentioned as well, long-term care facilities, specifically when we talk about uh, uh, staffing, they've been understaffed for decades, but you know, the issue is, is that during COVID-19, this really made all the pre-existing inequities, the under-resourcing, the understaffing, it made it all so much worse. And it exposed this rotten system. And I would really say the time to fix this broken system and redesign this system from the ground up is now. If not now, then when? 4,000 people, over 4,000 people have died in long-term care facilities from COVID-19 in Ontario alone. And as we know, many people died in the most appalling conditions where people didn't get food and water. They didn't have like even basic care. Uh, they died alone and separate from their loved ones. So this, this, I mean, we can make, uh, you know, we can take action now. And I mean, that's hopefully the one positive lining that we will all come together, regardless of our political affiliations, regardless of our position in society, to fix this broken system once and for all. Do you think we can, because that was something I was going to ask you, Dr. Arya, as somebody who's seen it firsthand and you just detailed uh, some of what's going on, sadly, in our long-term care uh, facilities, do you think that we can come together? Because, again, this problem didn't just start in the last year. And literally seconds after the announcement by Premier Ford about this investment in personal support uh, workers, I got a press release in my inbox from the Liberals uh, with the headline, Why did Ford wait so long to hire personal support workers? Which, you know, is a fair enough question, but is the time for politics, do you think, uh, long over when it comes to protecting and serving our seniors that we just got to get something done? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, of course. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say both, I think, points of view matter where, I mean, given what's happened during COVID, everybody deserves answers. People, you know, deserve transparency, honesty, and that's directly linked to public accountability. And obviously, our elected officials, regardless of which part is, you know, like of which political party they're, they're a part of and which level of government, I mean, they're, they're accountable to us. They're public servants. And this has been really a failure across many different governments and jurisdictions. And as you mentioned, it's not... Uh, I mean, this has been an ongoing failure, which has been worsened uh, during COVID. So, I mean, it's one thing to look into, well, why did this happen and how could we allow this to happen, which is important. But moving beyond this, we do have the solutions, Jeff. 
we can fix the staffing crisis. I mean, if we want to on an urgent basis, I mean, we're, we're in the same sort of scenario where science has advanced so much that, I mean, COVID was an unknown virus literally a, over a year ago, and we now have vaccines that are rolling out and, you know, are saving lives uh, at this point in time. We can come up with the solutions, and it's just a matter of political will. You know, I love the hopefulness, and we've needed that, obviously, particularly over the uh, last year with everything we faced, not only long-term care, but uh, obviously throughout the uh, pandemic. Uh, Remaining hopeful, having hope is just so key. But do you have hope, Dr. Arya, that this commission, and listen, we've all seen so many commissions come and go uh, over the years with no real change. Do you think that this uh, time around it'll be different, that this commission into long-term care is going to result in real change? Well, there's uh, several ways to look at that question and sort of uh, think about it. I mean, first of all, the commission um, only has the power to make recommendations. Um, I think the commission, first of all, is doing an excellent job uh, in making recommendations. And a reminder to everyone who's listening, I mean, we've had, as you pointed out, Jeff, but I can detail in a little bit or, you know, give a little more information. We've had hundreds of studies looking at long-term care already. Um, you know, the commission themselves has already, have, they've already put out two interim reports and their first report, which came out on October 23rd, literally said further study of the study is not needed. What is needed is its timely implementation. And they were talking about staffing. So really, I mean, we don't need to sort of have further studies. We know the solutions right now. And I think what this counts upon is that all of us as you know, Ontarians uh, in, in, in this perspective need to hold our elected officials accountable. I mean, when we talk about politicians, regardless of their sort of you know, partisan affiliations, their job is to get reelected. Right. That's their only job that they're looking at. And this has to be I mean, it must be a ballot box issue because many of these deaths um, were, were absolutely preventable and should not have happened. And these people's lives mattered. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. The time for study is done. And this is down to you and I and everybody else. And this is why we keep these conversations going here on this show and uh, on the radio and in public forums is to keep this issue alive because we have to hold our public officials accountable finally to get the the change that is really, truly needed in long-term care and for our seniors moving forward. Dr. Aria, I always appreciate the time and the conversation. Thanks for uh, keeping the conversation alive with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. All right. Be well. We'll talk soon. Dr. Ahmed Arya is a long-term care expert and a palliative care physician. With that, our Lomita Sheriff Station will be conducting the traffic investigation, and it'll take from days to several weeks to get the whole thing together. Once the investigation is completed, we will provide a detailed report. All right, Tiger Woods said to be awake, responsive, and recovering from major surgery. After, of course, yesterday, his SUV just outside of Los Angeles crossed a median, veered across two lanes of traffic, hit a tree before landing on its side. And joining us now for more on Tiger's condition is Dr. Adam Kassam. He is president-elect of the Ontario Medical Association, and he joins us now on Global News Radio. Dr. Kassam, good afternoon. Appreciate you coming on. Jeff, good to be with you. All right, first off, uh, could you just detail for us the uh, injuries as we know them that uh, Tiger Woods sustained uh, yesterday, this uh, compound fracture of his uh, leg and also basically the the shattering uh, of his ankle. Uh, as I understand it, I think most people do, a compound fracture indicates that the bone actually pierced through the skin. Yeah, so thanks, Jeff, for uh, for the invitation. And, and, you know, I'll tell you at the outset, uh, as a golfer and as someone who picked up the sport because uh, I saw Tiger Woods win the Masters in 97, 
you know, the, the images that we all saw were shocking and saddened, saddening and, and, and were really concerned about Tiger and his condition, of course. Um, you know, reading the Harbor UCLA Medical Center's announcement, they actually describe it as a comminuted open fracture affecting both the upper and lower portions of the tibia and fibula. Which so a comminuted fracture is actually a break in the bone that 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 results in greater than two fragments, and an open fracture is actually a fracture that unfortunately pierces through the skin. So that's a quite a, a significant injury, actually. Yeah, and what sort of a rehabilitation are we looking at in a possible a timeline to heal from something like this? Do you think? Yeah, so it's really hard to say. Just really depending on the actual outcome of the surgery. But typically speaking, most fractures of the lower extremity tend to do pretty well in terms of timeline. So typically, they'll take anywhere between 6 and 12 weeks. Now, obviously, with weight-bearing bones in your leg, that can take some, some additional time. But typically speaking, anywhere between 6 and 12 weeks for the actual fractures to heal. Now, the rehabilitative process also includes things like making sure that all of the atrophized muscle uh, continues to uh, to heal and to, to re-strengthen, and that can take uh, months um, to, to continue to do that. And so typically with these types of injuries, anywhere between 6 and 12 months is a reasonable timeline to expect full recovery. And what is the concerns, do you think, of Tiger's doctors, the immediate concerns are right now coming out of surgery uh, here today and in the coming days? Would there be some concerns uh, regarding uh, circulatory issues, that sort of thing? Sure, yeah. So initially, of course, any post-operative course, you'd be worried about infection. And so that's something that continues to be a concern for uh, for Tiger. But for any post-operative patient, of course, that's usually handled with uh, with antibiotics, but also good surveillance of the actual wound and, and the post-surgical site. There are obvious risks initially that you would be concerned about for things like compartment syndrome. Now, there was also a, a, an additional statement, I guess, that was made that actually um, suggested that, that, that Tiger actually underwent something called a fasciotomy or surgical release covering uh, some of the muscle um, uh, and, and tissue to relieve that pressure. Sometimes that can be done prophylactically, so it can be done in advance of uh, an expected increase in pressure in those compartments. But that is a, obviously a concern that continues yeah, would there have been a concern, do you think, at all, uh, Dr. Kassam, upon arrival at the trauma center of amputation? I've uh, seen that in a couple of places, that uh, maybe that might have been or possibly is in circumstances like this a uh, consideration. Uh, would that have been a consideration and a concern, do you think, in an accident uh, with injuries uh, like this? I would say that that's sort of a case-by-case -case basis. It's really impossible for us to really comment on that. What I will say is that uh, where amputation is being considered has to relate with this notion of compartment syndrome, which as pressures increase within these light compartments, that can block off circulation, that can affect things like nerve impingement and and and, and circulatory issues that you've, you've you've alluded to. So while it's very frankly impossible to tell based on this uh, this release, uh, that is sometimes a concern in injuries like this. Is it likely that doctors know the extent of Tiger Woods' injuries from yesterday at this point, or there, is there the possibility that there's some other internal injuries uh, within his body? I mean, this is a significant crash with a rollover that uh, maybe they don't know about yet? You know, again, hard to say really, Jeff, but what I can tell you is that I'm sure that he went through the gamut in terms of his, um, his trauma workup, which would have included a significant 
uh, imaging as well as other investigative procedures. And so I think that um, as far as any internal damage that you're talking about, they would have already probably been, been, been privy to that. One of the things that I see in some of my patients, of course, with any kind of motor vehicle accidents are, are concussions and post-concussive syndrome, whiplash-associated disorder, things like this on sort of the traumatic brain injury perspective. Again, impossible to know in Tiger's circumstance, but the significant impact that his vehicle did sustain does, does sometimes heighten our concern about uh, a latent head injury. Well, listen, let me say uh, here that uh, obviously we're all just very thankful that uh, Tiger Woods is uh, alive and uh, still with us. And now, of course, attention for golf fans such as yourself, Dr. Kassam, and me too, big, big Tiger fan, is will we ever see Tiger Woods out on the PGA Tour ever again? And are you concerned from a a medical standpoint, not as much uh, about the leg, although that's obviously, as we've detailed and talked about here, a significant injury Tiger fans know that he just had yet another back surgery a month ago and uh, what his back may have gone through in this rollover crash yesterday. Is that as big, if not a bigger concern than the leg when it comes to whether or not he'll ever swing a golf club and at an elite level again? So there's a lot there in terms of the number of injuries that he's sustained. And I think he's had five back surgeries now, which of course is a challenge with every, every surgical procedure that you go through the recovery from every single one does take its toll. And, you know, one of the, one of the perhaps um, benefits of, not benefits, but one of the perhaps uh, silver linings here is that this is his right leg. And so if he's a, he's a right-handed golfer and he pivots off his left, he might not have as, as significant um, impairment uh, because of, of the way that the weight shifts during a golf swing. But, you know, as far as recovery from this in terms of uh, professional sports, you know, it's really going to be, Time will tell. I think that no one wants to put anything past Tiger. I mean, no one thought that he could actually win the Masters um, in 2019. And so, you know, we're all rooting for him to, to get better, to recover, to rehabilitate. It'll take, a, it'll take some time. But what we do know about Tiger is that he's typically committed uh, to getting better and improving and, and, and recovery. So it's really time will tell. Yeah, and it's an interesting point you just made about uh, for those that are not uh, golf geeks, but uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, this being on his uh, right side, that's where the uh, weight is loaded in the backswing, but uh, typically it's the uh, left side for a right-handed uh, golfer that really kind of absorbs all the shock and the force, right? Yeah, and, and look, you know, his injuries in terms of their impact on the range of motion at the ankle and foot will also uh, be, be be determined with time. I think that, as you know, the, the foot and ankle has multiple ways in which it can move. It can move up and down to dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, left to right, which is inversion and eversion. And all of those are very important in terms of being able to, to walk, pivot, and to, uh, to to adjust to different slopes, uh, whether it's on the greens or on the fairways or even just, you know, within our own house. So, um, you know, hopefully with, with time that, that recovers. But, you know, there is, um, I think there is uh, some concern about that as well. Yeah, just finally, Dr. Kassam, what would a reasonable timeline be to see maybe if Tiger Woods indeed decides, uh, you know, he wants to mount yet another uh, comeback? Is it a year from now? Is it next summer where we might see him back out on the PGA golf course if he's able to uh, come back and recover from this? Gosh, you know, I think that if you talk to golf golfers and, and golf fans, you'd like him to, to try and get to, to 18 and catch Jack, but um, you know, in terms of the next major that you might be uh, in attendance or playing, playing in, uh, maybe Masters 2022 might be a realistic goal. 
All right. Well, we certainly uh, wish the best. I know you do as well as a big Tiger fan. Uh, Dr. Adam Kassam, thank you so much uh, for the update and providing your expertise. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeff. Take care. You as well. Dr. Adam Kassam is president-elect of the Ontario Medical Association. We've got more on uh, Tiger's uh, career and the road forward, the path uh, forward, with Canada's premier golf writer, Lauren Rubenstein. I mean, I'm sick to my stomach. Uh, You know, it hurts to see one of your, I mean, now my closest friends, um, you know, get in in an accident. And, man, I just hope he's all right. just, uh, just worry for his kids, you know. I'm sure they're struggling. Yeah. All right, that's an emotional Justin Thomas, PGA golfer, one of Tiger Woods' closest friends on the tour, reacting to the news of Tiger's rollover accident. About 24 hours ago is when we learned, exactly 24 hours ago we uh, learned about this uh, accident. And joining us now is Lauren Rubenstein. He is Canada's premier golf writer. He actually co-authored a book with uh, Tiger entitled The 1997 Masters, My Story, and Lauren joins us now here on Global News Radio. Lauren, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Well, listen, I'm okay. I just I don't even know where to begin. I'm not sure where to begin here other than the fact that as Tiger fans, I think we're all just relieved that this outcome wasn't any more serious than it was. I mean, it's serious enough, obviously. Yeah, exactly. You know, when uh, the news first came, as you say, 24 hours ago, you really didn't know what the story was, how serious, how extensive it was. Uh, was he going to live through this? Who knew? You know, was was there any further damage beyond to his legs? The first reports were of multiple leg injuries. But uh, as you say, it's serious enough. You know, it's potentially, uh, well, I mean, who knows what kind of quality of life he'll have. It's going to be quite a rehab. But uh, he's alive and he's got a chance. Now, when it comes to uh, golf, and uh, thankfully, as we've been saying all afternoon here, that uh, the outcome is that he is still with us and he is alive. So when it comes to golf, Lauren, what would you think be the biggest concern uh, moving forward for Tiger? Because there's a compound fracture right in the leg, uh, in the ankle, but as any Tiger fan well knows, of course, it's his back. He just recently had yet another, his fifth of back surgery. And I can only imagine what condition that back is in after that rollover. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's still in the process of recovering from the most recent back surgery. And his back, as you know, as many surgeries he's had, it's gotten more and more fragile. So there's that. Um, and then there's there's this, where he has to now go into an extensive rehab for these leg injuries and probably is facing more surgeries there. So, you know, he's got so many things to recover from here, so many, so many you know, kind of really dangerous uh, and potentially you know, not life-threatening, but quality of life-threatening, let's put it that way, uh, what he has to recover from. So it's tough. It's going to be tough. Nobody is tougher than Tiger Woods, and but you're looking at a kind of a Ben Hogan-like uh, recovery that will be required if he's ever going to go out there and play golf again. But right now, it's you don't even want to be thinking about golf, although you can't help. And uh, we'll just have to see where it goes, you know, and hope we, hope we can learn more, but we don't know, I mean, uh, how much it's totally up to the Tiger camp. Uh, to release what they want to release. So we'll really just be learning in dribs and drabs, I think, about how he's doing. Yeah, I was about to uh, bring up that name, Ben Hogan, because there are obvious comparisons to Hogan and that tragic auto accident he had back in 1949, also uh, crushing his legs. He came back uh, to have one of the biggest seasons in golf ever in 1953. So is that something that Tiger, uh, his fans, uh, his campus team can, can draw on, do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, once Tiger is through this initial phase, I think, and realizes, you know, he can walk again, um, then I think that he's the kind of guy who would look to Hogan and say, well, you know, he did it. Maybe I can come back and win again. Who knows? I mean, Tiger uh, will accept the challenge if it's possible. But, of course, you know, with this accident yesterday, and from what I understand from my reading today, there are other possible problems. There's the problem, um, some people are orthopedic surgeons uh, that I've read are saying the ankle is maybe even more dangerous, you know, in terms of threatening to him than the, the leg. You know, it takes about six weeks, I understand, to recover from broken legs. But, of course, he's got, you know, his leg injuries are really serious. But essentially, they're bones and they can heal, I understand. Uh, the ankle could be a different story. There's the possibility of arthritis settling in. And um, that's going to make it very difficult for him to really walk comfortably and um play golf, I think, at, at a high level. The one good thing is that um, there's his right leg, and there's not as much stress in the golf swing on the right side as there is in the left side when you're coming through the ball. So, um, you know, that is one thing in his favor. And the other thing in his favor is his mental strength and his commitment to uh, somehow rehabbing from this. But who knows? It's 24 hours, and we just don't know much. Yeah, talk to us a bit about uh, the Tiger Woods you know, Lauren. As I mentioned off the top, you co-authored a book with him, uh, The Masters 1997, My Story. You spent significant time uh, with uh, Tiger at a period uh, when he was rehabbing and really down where he could, uh, you know, he's described it himself, he could barely get out of bed uh, many days, and he came all the way back, of course, as we know, to win the 2019 uh, Masters. Talk to us a bit about just Tiger the person and his mental fortitude. Well, when I was sitting with him in that uh, kind of a boardroom in his suite of offices in Jupiter Island, and we were watching, not in Jupiter Island, in Jupiter, and uh, we were watching video of the 97 Masters and going over shots, and he was talking about them all. Uh, and, um, you know, he was in pain. He was sitting in a chair with a pillow behind his back, and he would get up every so often, stretch, do a few exercises. But uh, the thing that I noticed more than anything was uh, when he was talking about Pat Masters and watching the video and the shots, is he wanted to get back out there again on the playing field. And he would use any sign that he could possibly get there down the road as encouragement. And his voice would change. The tone of his voice would change when he was talking about some of the key shots that he hit. And you could see he just craved those moments. And if, uh, as I say, if it were all, all possible to get back there, I mean, he would do everything he could. And as you said, he won that 2019 Masters. I mean, having said all that, the guy is human, not superhuman, although sometimes it seems that he is. And uh, at 45 years old, it was going to be tough for him to come all the way back just dealing with what he was dealing with, the recent back surgery. And now this on top of that, it, it's, you know, almost kind of uh, <laughs> the, the imagination, you know, quivers at what he'll have to do to get past this. Yeah, and at what point do you just say enough's enough, really, right? Even if you're Tiger Woods, and I know that's obviously got to be something really uh, tough uh, for Tiger, and it's going to be a tough decision he's got to make uh, down the road uh, here, but uh, is there anything out there, because obviously Tiger Woods has got nothing really left to prove when it comes to golf, uh, being a golfer and on the golf course, but is it the Sam Snead record? He's tied with him for 82 wins, career wins uh, overall. If there's anything, would it be that that would motivate him to come all the way back, do you think? Yeah, there's that. But, um, you know, um, Nicholas's major championship record, three more. Tiger needs 
catch him. That's, you know, seeming pretty much, uh, you know, out of touch for him right now. But again, it's Tiger Woods. You can never say anything is impossible for the guy in golf. But I think one thing would be he got such a rush, such a charge out of winning the 2019 Masters with his kids now old enough to appreciate it, really. And then playing with uh, his son, Charlie, in that father-son tournament uh, most recently at the end of December. I mean, you could see how happy he was, how excited he was. And uh, I think that might be a high motivating factor for him to do whatever he needs to do. Um, to be able to come out there again and at least try. But, you know, having said that, I should only add that he has always said that if his best golf is not good enough to win, then he will stop playing. So he's not going to be out there just to fill in the numbers and finish 15th if he ever does get to that point again. I mean, unless he feels he can win again, I don't think you'll see him playing. He's not Lee Trevino or Arnold Palmer that he's just going to play for the fun of it on tour. You know, he might play with his buddies, but he's just not going to go out on the PGA Tour unless he feels he can win. No, and he's got a thriving foundation, the Tiger Woods Foundation. And do you think that that is going to be kind of his uh, focus moving forward? And maybe sadly that the, the, this accident is uh, a bit of a chapter closer, if you will, that it's time to turn the page? It's possible. I think you'll find that Tiger will, if possible, if he can, he'll always be involved in golf at a very high level, whether it's PGA Tour, whether it's, I mean, certainly his foundation, 25 years old now, is very, very important to him. Maybe he would take an even more active role in it than he takes. I think golf is so important to him, and his family is so important to him, his kids particularly, and setting an example for them that, you know, he just, you know, if he can't come back and play again, he may he may realize, you know, in a deep way, okay, I've still got this platform. I'm Tiger Woods. What can I do for the good of society, for the good of kids, um, and use that platform in, a, in, in some way that maybe playing golf and competing at golf didn't give him the time. So, you know, that's a possibility. I wouldn't discount that. All right. Lauren, always appreciate the time with you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, Jeff. You bet. All the best. All right. Stay well. Lauren Rubenstein, Canada's premier golf writer and co-authored a book with the Tiger Woods entitled The 1997 Masters, My Story. If you're a Tiger fan and a golf fan and you have not read that book, do yourself a favor. Pick it up.